Would you read this with me, please? We are the beloved of the Lord. In love, he created us. In love, he came to us. In love, he died for us. In love, he makes us his own, folding us into his love, transforming us by his love, sending us out in his love. By our love, this world will know that we are his. By our love, this world will see him in us as he lives his life of love in us and through us to the glory of God. Amen. So let's begin by taking just a moment for, uh, to do a little bit of personal reflection. Think of a time recently when you crossed a line that you shouldn't have. Or maybe when you fell short of a standard that you should have kept. Or said or did something that you shouldn't have. Now stop and think about that moment. What happened? How did it happen that a thing that you knew was wrong was something you suddenly found yourself doing? For example, what came to mind for me was a time when I interrupted Sharon a few days ago. That's something I'm working on in our relationship, and I'm realizing there are a variety of reasons that that happens. But I realized in this particular situation that what gave me the freedom to do that with Sharon in that moment was my sense of self-importance. That what I had to share was more important than what she was sharing. So what about you? When you think about that sin that we brought to mind, what made that sin make sense in that moment? We've been walking our way through the, uh, the wonderful and challenging New Testament letter that was written by James, who was at the same time the brother of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. And he's writing to Christian believers who come from a Jewish background. The focus of much of the letter is what it looks like to follow Jesus in practical, day-to-day -day sorts of ways, with a faith that shows up in what our hands and our feet are doing. The passage that we're looking at today, James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, addresses three things that are connected. How to think about trials and challenges that we go through. And then how to think about the temptations that surface in the midst of those trials. And then how to think about God in the midst of those temptations. James also talks in these verses about the gifts that God gives to his people, even in the midst of our trials, including his greatest gift to humanity, which is the gift of life through his son. And that's the theme that he begins and ends with in this passage that we're looking at. So let's walk through this beginning, James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Two convictions clearly lie behind this opening verse. First, God assures us that we will all experience trials and difficulties, without exception. As Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we sent Timothy to strengthen you, to encourage you in your faith, and to keep you from being shaken by the troubles that you were going through. But you know that we, that we are destined 
for such troubles. Even while we were with you, we warned you that troubles would soon come. And they did, as you well know. Second, God promises to use those trials for good in our lives if we let him. Think back to the opening lines of this letter that we looked at just a few weeks ago. Chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So, echoing those opening lines, in this verse, James again challenges us to think of trials and blessings in the same breath. Someone who is blessed is someone who is the recipient of God's favor, the object of his love and his goodness. Back in verses 2 to 4, James has already told us one reason that we can, can consider ourselves blessed when we go through hardship as followers of Christ. God will bless us by using those very difficulties along the way in life to make us more mature and more complete as followers of Christ. And now he gives us a second reason that we should consider ourselves blessed when we struggle. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. This crown is the victor's crown, the laurel wreath that was given to the one who successfully finishes the race, spent and exhausted at the end of a long, hard run having given everything and seen it through to the end. Unfortunately, there are some translations that express the idea that this crown of life is a reward. There's one translation, for instance, that ends this passage by saying, and afterward he will get his re as his reward the crown of life that God has promised. The idea of reward is very important in the New Testament, again and again, we are told that God will honor our faithfulness and our sacrifice, promising to reward us for such things as working hard for the Lord, showing love, doing good, sharing our resources, giving to the needy, refreshing others, doing what is right, and enduring persecution. So the idea of reward is very important and very encouraging, but that's not what this passage is about. James here is talking about the utterly undeserved gift of eternal life, which has nothing to do with what we do. Eternal life is something that we receive by faith as a gift. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the free gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift that we received the day that we gave our lives to Jesus by faith but one that we will only fully enter when we go to be with him at the end of our earthly lives. Soon it will be a homegoing, but now is the time of pilgrimage, of faithfully pressing on to the end, seeing it through faithfully to the finish line, and then we will be able to take our promised seat at the banquet. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, language that James is echoing here as he does so often throughout the book of James, quoting and referring to the words of Jesus. He says, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Life in Christ is hard. It requires so much of us, constant discipline, sacrifice, deferring, setting self aside. 
We experience incredible spiritual riches and blessings too. Yes, for those who love him, there is great joy in making those sacrifices for him. But the life of faith is not without cost. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life. James then addresses a specific kind of trial. One in which we find ourselves on the very edge of compromise, close to caving in, tempted to do wrong. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and nor does he tempt anyone. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on the book of James, shares this incredibly important insight that I think lies beneath this passage. Every trial comes with its own temptation. And you know this to be true, don't you? James says, when tempted, not if tempted. Temptation is a part of life for us because challenges and hardships are a part of life for us. And every hardship and every difficulty comes with its own unique set of temptations. What is a temptation? A persuasive suggestion that we will do well to follow a path over which God has already hung the sign that says, wrong way. There are as many temptations as there are sins. We can be tempted to sin against God with pride, self-reliance, independence from God, resisting God's authority, spiritual indifference, looking to something other than to God for rescue and help and rest, resentment against God, despair, and so on. We can be tempted to sin against others, through anger, unforgiveness, cutting words, sowing disunity, sexual sin, misuse of power, greed, materialism, self-importance, and so on. And we could be tempted to sin against ourselves. Self-recrimination, giving into despair, refusing to receive the grace that God ex extends to us, numbing our pain with alcohol and drugs, workaholism, destructive relationships, and more. Every trial comes with its own temptation. James says, all of us will always face trials. And in those trials, we will always face temptations. But we are wrong if we blame God for those temptations. Just because God allowed the trial doesn't mean that God caused the temptation. Or worse, that God caused the sin that resulted from it. When we accuse God of tempting us, and even more, when we blame God for our sin, we make two huge mistakes. The first is we misunderstand the nature of God and misrepresent it. That's what James begins to address in this passage in, in verse 13 and will address again in verses 16 and 17. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. The New Living Translation captures the black and white, no gray, no middle ground starkness of the language in verse 13. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. James has already told us that God allows difficulties to come into our lives in order for us to grow and mature, but it requires a lot of spiritual maturity for us to reconcile God's love with our struggles which he allows. And it's tempting for us to ask, well, then are you saying that God is an ends, justifies the means kind of God that, that 
categories of right and wrong somehow don't apply to him, that he's squishy on this idea of good and evil? James says, absolutely not. God is perfectly and purely and completely and only good. There is no part of him that can be appealed to by what is not good, and he will never cross that line in his dealings with us, ever. God's ways may be hard to understand, but they will never be wrong or sinful or evil, ever. But but wait, doesn't the Bible actually teach that God does tempt us sometimes? Look at the Lord's Prayer, where part of our daily prayer is to ask God not to lead us into temptation. Unfortunately, most English translations of the Lord's Prayer perpetuate a 640-year-old translation mistake that Wycliffe made when he created the first translation of the Bible into English. And he translated these words literally instead of taking into account that this was a Jewish idiom. This is what these words say, but this is not what these words mean. Lead us not into is a poetic way of saying, keep us out of, steer us away from. A much better translation would be the way the contemporary English version has it. Keep us from being tempted and protect us from evil. As we said, when we accuse God of tempting us and when we blame God for our sin, we make two huge mistakes. The first one, as we said, is to misunderstand and misrepresent the nature of God. That's what James addressed in verse 13. But the second is to misunderstand the nature of temptation and sin. And that's his point in verses 14 and 15. Each person, when each, uh, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. According to James, temptation begins with our desires. The Greek doesn't actually say our evil desires. It just says our desires, all desires, good and bad. If you didn't get a chance to listen to or to read my message on January 8th on our being fully satisfied in God, I really want to encourage you to go and uh, do so. It speaks of the deep desires that God has planted in our hearts as human beings and how the deepest of those desires is really for God himself, a hunger, a thirst, a longing, a desire for him who alone can satisfy us and give rest to our souls. When we seek to find our satisfaction and our rest in anything other than God, we will end up frustrated and disappointed and we will remain restless and dissatisfied. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. It's, it's a, a bit of an oversimplification, biblically, but in a sense, it could be said that the issue isn't right and wrong desires. The issue is desires rightly directed and wrongly directed. James uses two different colorful word pictures here to describe the way the desire gets misdirected and how that leads to sin. First, he uses fishing language of hungry fish and alluring bait and dangerous hooks. He says, our desires are awakened by some sort of bait that passes by in the current of life and entices them. 
We are tempted in that moment to believe that, that something or someone in this created realm, a person, a vocation, an ambition, an attraction, a possession, a position, a destination, that something or someone in this created realm has the potential of satisfying that deepest desire of ours that can only be met in God. So we attach our desire to that whatever it is that swims by, and then we are dragged away by the object of our misplaced desire, that alluring false food, just like a hook and line that grabs a fish and begins to reel in. The other imagery that James uses here is the reproductive cycle. Conception, birth, growth, and then the offspring conceives and gives birth, and it grows, and so on. According to James, desire is tempted to land on the wrong object for its satisfaction. Right desire joined to wrong object conceives what is contrary to God. And that illegitimate attachment begins to grow and multiply and eventually is birthed as sin. And that sin then begins to take on a life of its own. And when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. All desire for God that is directed to anything other than God will eventually be fleshed out in words and in actions that take life rather than giving it, vandalizing the blessings of God and robbing us and robbing others of what is best. So think back on the example in your own mind of how you fell into sin. Can you see how your desire lost its true object and joined to something else and sought to find its satisfaction and rest there instead? Notice what James makes clear about the nature of temptation here. God doesn't cause me to sin. God doesn't ever put me in a situation in which the only way out is to sin, ever. He will always give us a way out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. The temptation in your life, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. God doesn't cause me to sin. Neither does temptation cause me to sin. James places responsibility for sin squarely on the shoulders of human beings and our bent hearts. Temptation isn't something that happens outside of us. It's something that happens inside of us. Temptation isn't something that happens to us. It's something we do on the inside of us. And as soon as we say, I didn't have a choice, I was stuck in a situation where I didn't have a choice, we deceive ourselves. There is no direct, this happened, and therefore this had to happen, connection between a temptation and a sin. Temptation and sin are not the same thing, and they are not inextricably linked. Temptation is not wrong. It's not a sin. Sin is. The author of the book of Hebrews makes all of this so clear when he writes this about Jesus, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. 
At the heart of this passage, then, we are confronted with two alternatives. One is a choice to believe that my desires can be trusted, but that God can't. The other is a choice to look with mistrust at myself, to choose to believe that God can be trusted, but that my desires, or at least the direction my desires are pointing, cannot be trusted. So one option goes like this. I encounter challenging circumstances. I feel desire. I trust the reliability of my desire. I mistrust the reliability of God. I take the hand of my desire and I let it lead me. I walk unbelievingly into sin and I find my desires still remain unsatisfied. The other option goes like this. I encounter challenging circumstances. I feel desire. I trust the reliability of God. I mistrust the reliability of my desire. I take the hand of God and I let him lead me I walk faithfully with God, and I find my desire satisfied in him. So think again of that moment that you tumbled into sin recently. Can you see where you went astray? Can you see how your desire was wrongly directed and your trust was wrongly placed? Teach my song, Lord, to rise to you when temptation comes my way. So now James takes us back to one of his foundational ideas. Yes, trials are difficult. They're disorienting and confusing. And it is often not clear at all how God is working in them for our good. But no matter how difficult our trials are or how mysterious the ways of God are, this we can say without hesitation or qualification, God is good. He is only always ever good. Verses 16 to 17, don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. So now James shifts his imagery again and brings us into the world of astronomy. If you go out under the night sky, you notice that from the perspective of Earth, there are some things that are fixed and unmoving. Night after night, you know just where to look for the stars. And they never move around in relationship to each other. Orion, Cassiopeia, the North Star, the Pleiades, they are completely predictable and unchanging as we rotate beneath them. So much so that I can have socks with constellations on them and I can read the sky by them. The planets, on the other hand, with their retrograde motion, sometimes going east, other times going west, traveling in odd and undecipherable rhythms from one constellation to another, those were seen as changing and unreliable. And the moon, with its waxing and waning and sometimes disappearing and occasional eclipsing, all of those were seen as shifting, or the moon was seen as shifting or or turning with shadow. James says, the night sky is a parable of the steady and unchanging character of God, the father of the heavenly lights, who was associated with the highest heavens, the realm of the stars where everything was fixed and unchanging. He doesn't change like the planets. He doesn't turn like the moon. There is a singleness, a unity, an integrity of character to God. In him, the father of light is only perfect, brilliant, breathtaking goodness. And not even a shadow of anything else. 
Not even a hint. This absolutely unwavering Christian insistence that God is good and is only ever good is one of the ways that Christianity differs radically from a number of other world religions. As one example, in the Quran, in the chapter that's entitled Anissa, it says, if any good reaches them, they say, this is from Allah. But if any evil befalls them, they say, this happened because of you. No, say, all things are from Allah. And one of the traditional sayings that's attributed to Muhammad says, a person is not considered a believer unless he believes that good and evil are from Allah. Buddhists, Hindus, deists, all hold as uncertain a view of God's character. James strongly disagrees. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change or shift like the shadows. Even when life is filled with trials, even when the specific outworking of God's loving purposes isn't altogether clear to us, even when our hearts wrestle with myriad temptations in each new circumstance, God is totally reliable, perfectly good, and completely to be trusted, giving us his blessings and pouring out his gifts along the way. So before we turn into the final portion of this passage, what has God been saying to you this morning about how reliable you are and how reliable he is when you face trials and temptations? And what is and what should be the true object of your deepest desires? Well, as we come to the last sentence of this passage, we see how James brings together a number of important themes that he's already introduced. He's already talked about life. He's already talked about birth. He's already talked about gifts. And now James brings all those themes together with a powerful ending that echoes the place where we began. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. The Father of light pours out his good and perfect gifts upon us. And the greatest of those gifts is the gift of new life in Christ. Desire directed to something short of God, as James has said, will inevitably give birth to sin and death. But desire brought to God himself will mean a new birth into a new and beautiful life in which our souls find their rest and satisfaction and peace and joy in him through Christ. The word of truth that James refers to here is speaking of the central message in the scriptures, the gospel, the good news, that we were created for relationship with a good and loving God. And when we love him in response to his love for us, we enter into that relationship and we begin our lives anew. New birth affirms that something has changed in our interior. We have been made new by God. We've become a new person with new power and new capacity and a new outlook with new purpose and new identity, with new peace and with new joy. And James says that sort of person is like a, a first fruit of all that God created. You may remember that all of the first fruit belonged to God. And you may also remember that the first fruits were a long-awaited gift that was meant to nourish and sustain others, the first taste of something more to come. 
When we experience new birth into a living hope, our lives are turned out from ourselves. They are turned up towards God and out towards others as gift in response to gift. Mm-hmm.